Hi, I'm Jake Parker, and this is my podcast, Beyond Fit. My goal is to help you live a happier and healthier life by providing actionable knowledge and advice about a wide range of health and fitness topics. You can find me most active on Instagram at jakeparker.fit if you want to connect or just see what I'm up to. All right, guys. So the podcast you're going to hear today is with Jordan Syatt. The way I first found out about Jordan is he was actually Gary V's personal trainer was, or I don't know if he still is or not, but for a good while. And so I'd seen Gary V posting about him online and got to check out some of his stuff that he had on Instagram, his website, et cetera. And he really has become one of the big leading figures in the fitness industry. So I can't understate how big of an honor it was to be able to have this chat with him. It was really enlightening. I am proud of myself for being a little more vulnerable than I am in general, which you will hear if you if you listen to this podcast all the way through and get to understand. But I think that my favorite part about this conversation was that it went beyond just the normal things that I like to talk about. And I have been emphasizing recently some of the principles again around dieting and gaining muscle and losing fat, the things that are the staples of health and fitness. But this conversation went a lot into behavior and insecurities and confidence and just a lot of different things of that nature. So I think you're going to enjoy it a lot for a little bit of a change of pace. And Jordan is just such a fascinating guy and I had such a good time talking with him. Hi guys, this is Jake Parker back on the Beyond Fit podcast. So my guest today is Jordan Syatt. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, yes you did. Okay, okay. And Jordan um, is someone I've followed for quite a while. You are one of the people that is a big face in the health and fitness industry. And I think that I'm curious to know how you developed the platform you have and what that means to you and sort of what responsibility you feel or maybe what the thought is behind all the different things that you put out there as far as YouTube, Instagram, and all that kind of stuff to help educate people and help in what is, I'm sure you see as one of your main goals, just helping people live a healthier and uh, more happy life. Yeah. I mean, I, I built it just from doing what I do today, just on a, on a smaller scale. Right. So Mm -hmm. When I first started my website in July of 2011, so that's when I started my website almost 10 years ago. And um, I just, at that time, my main goal was just to put out as much helpful content as I could for free over and over and over again. So I would write at least one article a week, every week for my website. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays, for people getting into the industry they, they often don't understand that a lot of it's just on Instagram or TikTok mm-hmm. or Facebook, or they don't really spend too much time on an individual piece of content. They, they try and just get it as much as, as much out as they can, as quickly as they can. And an article would take 16 to 24 plus hours of work in terms of mm-hmm. thinking of the article idea, researching the article, writing the article, editing article, publishing the article. It was a considerable amount of time for each single piece of content. And then not to mention when you don't have an audience, you might mm-hmm. have several people at most, most of whom are your mom reading it. Mm-hmm. And um, 
that was the majority of, of my first three to five years in the industry from an online perspective, just mm-hmm. doing articles and Facebook posts. And because when I started, Instagram didn't even exist. So I would upload some YouTube videos for technique videos. And I would do at least one article every week and uh, post on Facebook with like various little strength tips that I would post up there every day. And um, then as you know, time progressed and I worked with more people, I started to build an audience. And before you know it, nine years goes by and you're still doing it. And it's still mm-hmm. working, still helping people. Yeah, that was that was kind of my question based off that first thing, like how you talk about it takes so long to write an article that you're actually proud of and feel good about putting out there. Well, like you say, stuff these days is so short term and can be so, you know, you want to be that you want that immediate gratification. So you go and write an Instagram post that takes five minutes, you're probably getting a lot more immediate gratification than if you go and write a long form blog post, but that's actually geared towards helping people and, and putting the best information together. So how, how did you just have this internal drive of like enjoying the work and knowing that you wanted it to be something that you're proud of? Is that, I guess my question is what kept you going or what kept you um, fired up in the beginning when you had such a little audience to speak of? So there's, there's a couple of things that I'll say. Number one, I think is it's important to note like the perspective that I had, which was very different because Instagram didn't, didn't even exist. Mm-hmm. Right. So online coaching wasn't really a thing. Instagram literally didn't even exist yet. So mm-hmm. the, the idea of being Insta famous or getting a lot of followers on Instagram wasn't even a thought in my head. It wasn't a reality. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I think a lot of times what happens now is coaches will, they prefer to do something on Instagram because it's easier to check off the box. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I posted on Instagram, so I did it. Like I'm putting in effort. I, I posted on Instagram, so I did the post, but I'm still not getting any followers and they get really upset. When I was posting, when I was doing articles, that was the main way that fitness professionals were growing an audience at that time. That was what the best fitness professionals with the biggest audiences were doing every week, sometimes several times a week, they were putting out these big, long, 1500, 2000, 2500, 3500 word articles. And it was funny because I remember I would wait for several, a handful of people to put out their article that week. Like I would be waiting for it. I would mm-hmm. wait to get the notification, to get the email from them. Hey, articles up, go get it. I'd wait on their website, refreshing the page, waiting for that week's article. And it's very different now that that, that doesn't really exist as much. It's, it's, we, we might get that oftentimes from a podcast perspective, like waiting mm-hmm. for someone's podcast to go, but not as much long form written article. Um, I, I think the main thing that kept me going relative to what I see today is I had a huge advantage in, in not knowing that an online business was possible. Because when I first started, I didn't know, online coaching wasn't a thing. I didn't know that it was going to happen. I had no mm-hmm. idea. So I were you just doing personal training in person? Yeah, I was doing personal mm-hmm. training in person. I'd done that for almost 10 years before I ever got online. And then I was just, I wanted to just, I just wanted to write articles that would help people. That was literally, mm-hmm. I didn't know, I didn't know paypal.com existed. I didn't know people could pay you online. I didn't know people would do that sort of a thing. So I was just writing articles because the people that I, that I admired most were doing that. And then I think what happens now is a lot of coaches, they really start doing online coaching because they think it's going to be easy money. They think it's yeah. going to be easy. They'll make quick money. They'll be on the beach in no time. They can just work from wherever. 
and every single time they post, they have an idea in their head that like, okay, awesome. So like, I'm going to make this post, someone's going to like it, then they'll pay me for mm -hmm. my services. It's like, that's not how it works. Like you have to put in years and years and years of work before people start to realize how valuable you are and how good of a coach you are. And then they decide to trust you enough to hire you to coach you from wherever in the world. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's not like a one Instagram post, one client sort of a thing. It's like 1000 Instagram posts, 10 clients sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the thing that jumps to mind for me is that I think that personally I like writing because it helps me to sort out my thoughts and I enjoy just like the art of it. It's kind of like you're, it's almost like you're creating and uncovering something at the same time. Whereas like, obviously you go and do research and that connects this point to that point and all that kind of stuff I think is really fun. But in the, again, in the society we live in, that's so focused on a lot of times that short-term gratification. I think that people don't realize that that's out there, that this, this really deep satisfaction from doing something that you care about and put effort towards and cultivate in this way is it's not something that's that's talked about or thought a lot about yeah I mean, and not to mention i mean a lot of personal trainers are the first ones to complain about their clients being ah oh, they just want instant gratification mm -hmm. they just want to take the easy way out they want to take the supplement the pill like the quick workout and uh, they don't understand how long it takes, how many years of hard work it takes to build this body and da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. And then meanwhile, it's like they post seven posts on Instagram, three of which are their pickup truck, two of which are their dog. And there's mm -hmm. another couple of random ones in there. And they're like, I don't know why I'm not getting any clients. It's like, well, because mm -hmm. you're not fucking patient and like you're not mm -hmm. putting out good content. Like it takes time. Mm -hmm. And so what I was curious uh, when you talk about posting blogs, what was the medium at, 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 uh, at that point when you started? What was like the common thing that people used to build a website? Uh, WordPress. Oh, Works. okay. So yeah, when so I, still I remember popular. at my first internship when I was 14, they were using Blogspot. So they were using Blogspot.com, and that was mm -hmm. actually my first. My, I think my first two websites were on Blogspot.com. It was like anyone could start a blog, and it was like super cool. And mm -hmm. I like just started a Blogspot.com, and that was my first one. But my first real website that I actually paid for that like had my name and logo on it that I took very seriously was WordPress. Mm -hmm. But it was very different. It was very different than WordPress is now. Like WordPress yeah. is very easy to use. It, they have these amazing free templates that look really great for your website. Mm -hmm. They have all these plugins. And I remember my first website looked so bad. The comments are still up. I've never deleted a comment on my website. There are comments you'll find on my articles in 2011, 2012, from people saying, Hey, I love your work, but why does your website look like shit? It's mm -hmm. like, it was, it was terrible. And I mean, that was just the, one of the first iterations of WordPress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as far as when you talk about, you've mentioned a couple of times that these role models that you had were people that inspired you to get into this work and inspired you to share yourself. Who are some of the initial role models that you had? And I'm curious, like what got you into health and fitness in the beginning. It sounds like you've been into it uh, from, from a young age. Yeah. So, I mean, I'd say some of the main ones were Eric Cressy, Dan John, Pavel Satsulin, um, Tony Gentlecore, um, Mike Robertson, Joel Jamieson. These are all some really like high level guys that were just incredible coaches and put out tremendous content. Eric Cressy, I was just texting him the other day because uh, I was talking about this on another podcast. Um, Eric Cressy has put out content in some form every single day since 2001. Wow. Like 
just it's crazy like 19 years of of content online over and i've done it for almost a decade so almost 10 years it's like you see consistently the people who are the most successful in the industry consistently with like, same thing with fitness. When you're mm-hmm. consistent with your nutrition, your training, you have amazing results. Same thing with business and, and social media and content online. Um, but I got into it initially from wrestling. I started wrestling when I was eight mm-hmm. years old and I made varsity as a freshman in high school. So I had to cut a lot of weight. So I was cutting from 112 pounds to 103 pounds Um, and I was good from a technique perspective and endurance perspective, but since I was going up against mostly older kids, juniors and seniors, when I was a freshman, my strength wasn't where it needed to be. So I wanted to learn, well, how do I get stronger while cutting weight? And so I applied to intern at a gym, a couple towns over from me. And not only was I very lucky that they took me under their wing, but I was equally, if not more lucky that they were very science-based and Mm -hmm. introduced me to the science-based strength. You were what age when this happened? 14. Oh yeah, that is really cool to have yeah. someone bring you in at that at that early of an age. Yeah, very very lucky. So then, when did I know that you had some experience with Westside, correct? So when did that all take place, and how did that come about? So I wrestled all through high school, and I fell in love with coaching during high school. Uh, after high school, I stopped wrestling and I went into powerlifting, which was a very common thing. You saw a lot of a lot of wrestlers going into powerlifting. They were already involved in strength and conditioning and squatting and deadlifting for, for wrestling. Um, and they're also very good at cutting weight. So mm-hmm. like, it, it, because powerlifting competitions are so few and far between, it's relatively easy compared to a wrestling season. Mm-hmm. So I went into powerlifting, fell in love with it. And that was around 2009, 2010, 2011, right when Westside was becoming like, Westside had, was already very well known, but it was becoming more and more well known because of their lifters, but also because social media and because they were, they were putting out content. Louis had been writing articles. Louis had mm-hmm. been making videos that were going viral. Like people were like, who is this guy? Like, this guy's crazy. I want to mm-hmm. know more about him. And um, I wrote Louis an email for my college dorm room. Basically, I had seen an article from him looking for a lightweight lifter. He was, someone had basically said, Louis, you can only train heavyweights. Like, you don't have any lightweights. And Louis was like, screw you. I can train lightweights. And mm-hmm. so Louis was put out an article basically being like, I'm looking for a really good lightweight lifter. And I wrote him an email. I was like, listen, that's me. I'll come to your gym. I'll, I'll walk your dogs. I'll take the trash out. I'll clean the floors. Let me just come train with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, he called me back and he, he let me come out there. I came out there and I tried out for two days. So I, I had a, a tryout during my spring break. And uh, basically every single exercise, I was like, how many sets, how many reps? And he would say, go as heavy as possible until it hurts too much. Mm-hmm. And it over and over and over for two days and at the end of the two days he was like all right i'll see you over the summer so i trained there for a little over three months at the uh, end of my freshman year of college okay and then were you were you studying something in college along the lines of health and fitness so i started with exercise science that's what i went in for but i had already mm-hmm. had about four plus years of coaching experience just being at that gym mm-hmm. and i very quickly realized that a lot of the professors had no idea what the hell they were talking about. They had never mm-hmm. actually coached anybody. They had just only studied from the book, which like, if it's a very, very big difference between yeah. learning from a book and actually coaching people. And then I also realized that you could have the best program in the world. You could have the best workout, the best diet, but if someone's not following it, it doesn't matter. And I saw a lot of people just not being consistent while I was coaching them when I was a kid. So I was like, I want to learn more about the behavior and psychology of this. So I switched from exercise science to behavioral health psychology. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up is like when when I look at academia and things like like you said, a major like exercise science or something along those lines, I think that there's a huge gap in the the optimal way to do something and the well, like the optimal as far as this is what got the results in X or Y research and then actually what someone's going to comply to and what's going to be sustainable and people are going to adhere to. And I think that that's been my biggest problem when you look at the academia. I think that there's a balance somewhere in between of the, the anecdote and what works in the lab. But I'm sure that you saw right away with all the experience coaching you had, it was like, nah, this stuff just doesn't add up. Well, yeah. I mean, I think one of the greatest benefits that I had was coaching at that gym from a young teenager. Mm-hmm. Because I remember, I mean, the two coaches who took me under their wings were Kevin and Stacy. Kevin McCarthy, Stacy Shadler, very science-based. They introduced me to Eric Cressy. They introduced me to Pavel Sosley. They introduced me to Dan John. They introduced me to all these incredible coaches. And one of the things they would do is they would sit down with me and write these programs. So they would say, all right, so you've got a soccer player, 16 years old, left knee injury. How do you program for them to improve speed and power without hurting their knee? And we'd sit down and we'd write the program. And then I'd write the program and we'd go over all this stuff and it would be what you might call an optimal program for that person. But then I'd have someone come in and I'd write down, I'd write what might be the optimal program, but then they'd be like, no, you want to change this. You want to change that. I'd be like, why? But that's not optimal based on the stuff we went over. They're like, yeah, but maybe this person's like, they had a really stressful day. I know they just got a Mm -hmm. divorce, right? So they're not feeling very good. So you don't want to give them that much volume. It's like physiologically, what, on, what might look on paper like the best plan doesn't always play out when you're coaching real people in real life. Mm-hmm. So what have been like a few of the mainstays from being that young and starting to coach people to now you've been in the health and fitness industry for, it sounds like 20 plus years. What are some of the things that you like to try to harp on now that you've come to see as like the most important and what are just some of the mainstays? Because the other, the other interesting thing is, it seems like you more than anybody know how much like fad diets and the, you know, the supplement or workout of the year or whatever, that kind of stuff comes and goes. And so what does that look like for you? And how have you been able to sustain, you know, just your course of knowledge and being able to help people um, in the, in the, in the best way possible? So, so just clarify, I want to, I want to make sure I actually answer the question. Just clarify, like you want me to ask to talk about, what the most important parts I think are for people in order to stay consistent. Yeah. Like what, like what are, so like, what are some of the major principles that you've seen from when you started coaching to now that just are all, have always been important to, so it seems like in some respect, you've always been educating people. And so what are some of the most important things that have been tried and true that need people need to be educated on? Yeah, I, I think, um, there's a lot, but I'd say this, I, I, I'm much more focused on principles than I am individual tactics, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. So I think a lot of people are looking for like, well, just tell me, tell me like what I need to do for, I don't know, to get rid of the stubborn belly fat mm-hmm. or what I need to do in order to, uh, I don't know, get my shoulders looking like that person's, whatever it is. It's like, I could tell you all the, the tactics that you want, but if you don't understand the principles, then it doesn't matter. Um, so I think one of the most important ones that I've learned over the years is you could follow an okay training program, like a program that's like, eh, on it, like, we'll call it like a a 75% well-written training program, a hundred percent of the time. And that would perform, that would yield better results than following the best training program ever written 70% of the time. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, this is super, super important to understand. I'll, I'll say it again. You can follow an eh training program, but it's like, we'll call it a 70% well-written training program a hundred percent of the time mm-hmm. that would yield better results than following the best training program ever written 70% of the time. It just, it just plays into the whole consistency thing where a lot of people are looking for the best program. They're looking for the best diet. They're mm-hmm. looking for the best thing to do. I want the best meal plan. I want the best exercise program. I want the best supplements. I want the best this. I want the best that. Give me the best, the best, the best. Mm-hmm. But when they're really trying it, when they're putting it to the test, they're not being consistent and they're getting pissed because they're not getting the results they want. And they're not getting the results they want, not because the program isn't good, but because they're not following it. Mm -hmm. which is why I think people need to spend less time looking for the best and start focusing on what they can do to be more consistent on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. I think that what that speaks to, to me is like kind of like a conversation I had on my podcast this morning, just about the, it was sort of like correlation causation. I can't remember exactly how we got on the track, but it was like people that get, you know, that lose weight on keto or the paleo diet or something like that. And they think that, oh yeah, this is why I lost all this weight. Not looking at the principles, you were eating less because of X, Y, and Z. And I think it's the same way with like, if someone, you know, say that there, like I, I knew back in my hometown, the guys that had like come to the gym that I lifted at and they'd been lifting for 10, 20 years. And they tell me stuff that, oh, you have to do this. You know, you got to do a burnout set after your, <laughs> after your bench press or whatever, you know, whatever, like bro sciencey thing. And I'd be like, well, they must know what they're talking about. You know, they're, they're way bigger than me. But again, it was more of one of those things where it's like they, they come to the gym after work five days a week for 10, 20 years. And so even if you're not doing the most effective thing every time, that's going to blow, you know, the consistency is going to blow away any, any sort of non-optimality in your, in your training for you program, know, I guess. It, it's so funny. A lot, a lot of people hate on like those, those bro sciencey dudes in the gym who might be jacked, super strong, but they don't do things in the most science-based way, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they're like, just because someone's big or someone's jacked doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. And that's correct. Just because they're big and jacked doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. But success leaves clues. Mm-hmm. It's really, really important to pay attention to. Success leaves clues. And if you see someone in the gym who's big and strong, They might not know what they're talking about, but they're doing a lot of things right. And especially if you see someone in the gym consistently who's big and strong, just look, you don't even have to look at what exercises they're doing, what sets they're doing, the technique they're doing, but what do you see? They're in the gym consistently. Mm -hmm. They're always there. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, you see them four times a week. They're lifting weights. They're challenging themselves. Maybe their technique isn't picture perfect. Maybe their programming isn't the best in the world, but they're fucking there success mm-hmm. leaves clues stop judging people and saying, well it doesn't mean they know what they're talking about maybe they don't but at least they're there mm-hmm. that and, and, and an interesting excuse me an interesting part of compliance i think is like they're probably in there having fun like maybe for them it probably is yeah. fun to do like whatever super like arm superset of the week or like you know one repping on bench like guys love to do that kind of stuff and what keeps them coming in is that they don't go and maybe if someone was like here this is the scientifically optimal way to do it maybe they'd be like well that isn't as fun as what i used to do and so maybe exactly. they'd start taking more days off a hundred percent i i agree mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so just a couple questions based on what you've said so far i'm curious how it was being a coach at such a young age did you ever find that people you know, like doubted that you had the right information or is it's like, what this, this kid's going to tell me what to do. You know, what, what does he know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of it was 
my own insecurities, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of it was I put it on myself. I remember, I vividly remember. So when I got the internship when I was 14, uh, they didn't let me coach people for the first few months. I was just there. I was cleaning yoga mats. I was filing papers. I was mm. greeting people at the front door. Like I was, I was outside in the cold, handing out flyers for people to go by to the gym. Like the first few months I didn't do any coaching. And then after everyone left, the coaches would stay after with me and spent time with me and taught me. Um, the first thing they ever let me do in terms of coaching was in a big group class, they let me teach the warm up. And I'd seen them do this warm up hundreds of times by this point. Mm -hmm. I knew it by heart. I was petrified. I was, I was shaking. I was so nervous to get in front of the, and everyone in the gym knew who I was. They knew that I was the intern. They knew that I was mm -hmm. like the 14 year old kid who just loved working out and wanted to like learn. And so everyone was very nice and they were super supportive and they applauded me when I went up and it was great. It was a really great environment, but I was petrified and I was mm -hmm. like, not, I'm going to mess it up. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about, did it, all this other stuff. And then I remember as I started to put out content, because most people don't start coaching and don't, most people don't ever get really gym experience as a coach until they're 21, 22, 23, like don't really get much before that. So I had already had four five, six years of experience by the time I started posting content online. That's really where I was met with the most pushback from other coaches who were like, what are you doing, kid? You're 21, you're 22. And looking back, like I can understand why they would do that. And I disagree with a lot of the things that I said back then. Mm -hmm. But the reality is just because of my age, didn't my age didn't discredit what I was saying. It was what I was saying discredited what I was saying. But mm -hmm. I think we, we find, I mean, I watch 57 year olds say really stupid shit, right? Mm -hmm. Like I watch like older coaches and younger coaches. Um, I think whatever you're insecure about, you're very likely to find pushback on. And it's mm -hmm. because you're sort of looking for it, right? If yeah. you're insecure about something, if you're insecure about your age or you're insecure about your weight, I get a lot of coaches nowadays who they're like, I, do you think I could ever make it as a coach because I'm not shredded because I'm a little bit overweight? Like that's what they're insecure about. And they'll tell me that they mm -hmm. get pushback on that. I'm sure they do somewhere, but I bet they find it a lot. They find a reason to put it out there and to to find a way to allow that to prevent them from putting out content because they think people are going to push back about it before anyone really even does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've often heard that like one of the sayings that has resonated with me or one of the theories is like, whatever is most frustrating to you about someone else is usually something that frustrates you about yourself. So like for me, for example, I definitely have noticed myself and it's definitely not something I'm proud of, but it's definitely it's definitely um, something that I've noticed before. It's like, sometimes I'm almost like, just like frustrated when people are out of shape. I'm like, it's so easy. You know, I learned how to be in shape. Like why are, why are all these people out of shape? And then it's like, to me, I kind of think back to, it took me so long to figure out how to make everything optimal for myself. And like all these other variables talk about how to sustain a program and all that sort of stuff. And I had spent a lot of time and still from time to time feel unhappy with how I look and how I feel. And so I think that I push that. That's one thing about my personality that I push off on other people. Yeah. I, I think I, how, how old are you by the way? 24. Got it. Yeah. I, I did a lot of that when I was younger as well. Like I did a lot of that when I, and I, you know, it's funny. I would get mad anytime someone would bring up age. I mean, I started my website when I was 21 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, and people would be like, what are you doing kid? Da, da, da. I remember when I was at it and I would sort of hate when they did that, but looking back, like 
I, I would get the same feelings, the same emotions. And I think it's something, I don't necessarily think it comes with age definitively because some people are just assholes all the time for like, there's always an asshole. But like, that is something that I think it changes as you get older and you work with more people and you see you're, you go through more in life, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, for example, Definitely. I, for a long time, I would look at frequent travel or business trips as an excuse or justification people would use to not work out or stay in shape until I was doing that for three years straight coaching Gary Vaynerchuk. And I was on planes Mm -hmm. and in hotels and like I gained body fat. I lost muscle mass. I worked out way less frequently. My nutrition wasn't anywhere near as good because I had a lot more empathy and understanding and perspective to see, man, that lifestyle is brutal. Mm -hmm. And like, I couldn't imagine trying to stick to a regular in the gym workout program when I'm traveling three to five days out of the week, like that's not going to happen. So that allowed me to actually be a better coach because then I could empathize with that person more. I could give them a better program based on the stuff that I experienced while I was traveling for work nonstop. And that allowed them to be more consistent and see better results. I also think it's a lot about changing your perspective of success as a coach, right? Like in our mind, a lot of the things that we want to see our clients get shredded and we want to see them lose a ton of body fat. And we know they can always improve, but also understanding there's this happy medium of like, Hey, they've improved a lot and they're happy here. Like mm-hmm. we don't need to take them to another level. Like they're great. Like they, they're healthy. They're strong. They're getting stronger. What would taking them to the, would, what would be the cost and benefit of taking them to another level and oftentimes, right. especially when you're working with a single mom, three kids, working a job, maybe two jobs, taking it to the next level in fitness might do more harm than good in her overall health, right? Because a lot mm-hmm. of times, it, especially as coaches, we think of health as like strength training, nutrition, and that's what we think of. But what about interpersonal health, interpersonal health, family health, mm-hmm. social life health, work health, um, uh, financial health, all these things. We have mm-hmm. to look at that other stuff too. And that's why like one of the best lessons I ever learned as a teenager, like that, that person walks in the gym and we change the program, not because they're injured, not because they're sick, but because they're going through a divorce. So we're going to change the volume. It's like Mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff massively, massively impacts how people are going to perceive and perform in their fitness. And I think that you just, you get better with that ideally, or hopefully you get better with that over time. One of the best lessons Eric Cresty ever taught me, he was like, uh, if you're not looking back at the programs you wrote six months ago and thinking, man, those are shit, then you're not getting better as a coach. Mm -hmm. And it it applies to all aspects of coaching. If you're not looking back at emails that you wrote, email interactions, conversations that you had, um, nutrition programs, strength training programs, exercise. Like if you're not looking back every six months and saying like, man, that's not like I've improved since then. And it's, it's not a good sign. Yeah. That's a sign of growth. It reminds me, um, have you ever heard of, uh, the Jordan Harbinger show? He, he's a podcast host. I've definitely seen that name. Yeah, I, big, like, big name in like networking and that kind of stuff. That's kind of like yeah. his niche. But uh, I remember he said on a podcast that um, like basically he'll listen to episodes of the podcast he did a, a year or maybe even less, like give or take a year ago. And he's like, oh, I just cringe at the way I used to talk or the way that you know I, I thought or whatever at the time. And it's like, I think that you can take solace in that, just knowing that, well, that, that's, that's good. It means I'm always moving ahead. That means that's probably going to happen again next year. And like, I, to me, like you ask about age and the thing that sticks out to me uh, that's very visceral as far as age is like, I love getting to connect with people that are like in different age groups than me because they can kind of like help to impart 
lessons that, that they learned like the hard way over time and tried to teach you about whether it be insecurity or how to maintain relationships or how to maintain your health and fitness, you know, no matter who it is. Like I, I, I love getting to talk to people that are, you know, 10 years older than me, 20 years older than me, or even like my parents' age or my grandparents' age, because everybody has, you know, different experiences based on different points of their life. And I think uh, one of the interesting things that you said too, about like looking back and, you know, you kind of cringe at some of the stuff you put out there. Well, it's funny how, again, principles can be the same, but whereas now it seems like we're kind of in the place where macros and macro tracking is a really huge thing in fitness. Whereas maybe 10 years ago, it was like clean eating and everybody thought that that's what it took. And now everybody's more, oh, well, you can just count macros. But what stays the same overall is the energy balance is there. Usually people prioritize eating, you know, even, even if it fits your macros, normally is like an 80-20 sort of thing. And yeah. so just knowing that you have to eat in a specific way and no matter how you get there, I'm sure that I'm sure that that's a lesson you've learned over time is like, Oh, every different phase that society or the fitness industry kind of goes through, there's, there's big, ter there's big term principles that are interrelated through all of them. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And you'll notice as you progress through the industry, a lot of the fads, they go in cycles. Like yeah, I mm -hmm. remember like keto is huge right now, but several years ago, no one was talking about it. And I remember when I like, but I remember right when I got in the industry, keto was a big thing. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Atkins. Oh yeah. Atkins, mm -hmm. I, like that was an explosion. That was huge. And mm -hmm. it seems like since Atkins, there was a big explosion tapered down. Now it's coming back again. Um, usually everything goes in cycles and oftentimes it goes in cycles because it aligns with marketing. It's like, mm -hmm. you can't just do the same exact thing over and over and over again and expect the same result from a marketing perspective. So a lot of times marketers will change whatever program they're running or whatever they're saying is optimal yeah. in order to see, we got this new unique thing that is going to help you mm -hmm. burn more fat. And that's what they keep recycling all these different methods to try and sell more. Yeah. And not only is there a cycle, but oftentimes there's like things that completely flip around. So like where low carb is pretty popular right now, I know that there's been times where it's like, oh, you want to avoid fat. So eat fat free oh, yeah. this and fat free that. And so it's like, not only, not only is it circ not only is it cyclical, but it's like you go to both extremes from time oh, to time. That's the whole, uh, I remember vividly, my parents would buy these like snack well cookies that were like mm -hmm. zero fat. And like, that was the thing. They're zero fat. So they're healthy for you. Mm -hmm. But it was like loaded with sugar and all. It was just like, that was when I was a kid. That was before I got in the industry, but I just, I vividly remember. And it was funny. My, my father, he was obsessed with Atkins and then he was mm -hmm. obsessed with like the snack well stuff. And he would go mm -hmm. back and forth. It's like, it always goes in these cycles over and over and over again. You see it with every generation. Yeah. It reminds me of another thing. Like I said, I had a, I guess I had a good podcast this morning because this stuff keeps coming up that we talked about. But I think that one of the really interesting things to me and why I feel like I can make such an impact for throughout, you know, the entirety of my life, really making health and fitness the just say like career vocational sort of area that I put my effort towards is because it's one of those things where even people that are professionals, you know, like a successful doctor, a lawyer, you know, someone who has it all going, has a family and is, you know, just whatever you think of as someone who's put together. But these are the people that buy 
these 30 day programs and that buy any of these different diets. And I've always just been so surprised by that. And to me, it's one of the main reasons why I think that it's, it's worthy to keep trying to educate people. Yeah, I completely agree, man. I love that. And my, uh, it's interesting because you kind of talk about your parents, like my dad was always big on the keto diet and like low carb. And so I kind of remember like, you know, go getting into, so like 10 years ago about give or take, I started lifting weights and it was definitely at the point where bodybuilding.com forums and that sort of stuff was like really big. And so I'd be all searching on there and they'd be talking about how to cut and how to bulk. And I would, you know, I would be trying to cut and I'd be like, well, it seems like, you know, carbs are something that, that isn't good when trying to cut. So maybe I'll just try to eat less carbs and that's how I get shredded. Like it's, it's funny. It's almost like, I wish that there was, I've said this before. It's like, there should be a part of school, like high school or something like that, that teaches you about energy balance and like, like how to not be sucked into diets because that becomes such a big part of people's lives and something that people can waste money on and waste time on when really like, like we've mentioned a few times, it's just principles. I, I agree completely. I, I would love to see more from, uh, public education in many, many areas, right? In terms of mm-hmm. health and fitness, uh, how, to, how to balance your checkbook, how to pay mm-hmm. your taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot from public education I'd like to see more. That's, I guess, a whole different topic. But mm-hmm. there's so much time learning things that I've literally never used in my entire life except to try and memorize for the exams when it could have been so much better studying, hey, like these are foods high in protein. Mm-hmm. And like, even if they don't say like what's good or what's bad, it's like, let's just talk about like the science. Like, cool. Like I would way rather spend time learning about different macronutrients than learning about the Krebs cycle. Like mm-hmm. I've never, ever used the knowledge of the Krebs cycle in working with a client, but I've mm-hmm. always had to make like a spreadsheet with a, your ideas for proteins, your ideas for carbs, your ideas for fats, like man, so much of, of what public education teaches us, especially about health and fitness could be significantly improved with base level knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's, it's funny because again, I think that so much of it does come down to just marketing. And like, the thing is the thing, I mean, you know, you can put on your tinfoil hat and just kind of be like, well, if everyone understood this stuff, then that would be a lot of people wouldn't have a job. You know what I mean? Like if, if this supplement industry wasn't getting as many people attracted to it because if, if people really knew that supplements are maybe the last two or 3% as far as what's important and they really focus more on how to format a diet that fits their lifestyle, well then you'd, you know, you'd put people out of work, so to speak in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's exactly right. So going back to what you said a little bit ago about, you know, you've grown so much in confidence and self-esteem, especially being introduced to, you know, being a coach, being a trainer at such a young age, what are some of the things that you most attribute to your, your personal growth in that realm? Like if someone was feeling like they didn't have any confidence in themselves or, you know, they just didn't understand that how someone can be so confident in speaking. And like, for example, for me, I think this podcast has been such a good thing for not only educating people, but it's been like a self education for myself because the more I speak and have to, you know, talk about my ideas around health and fitness, the more they get refined. And I think that that has been a big thing for me as far as growing in confidence. What have been some of the biggest things that you've seen yourself change in that area over time? 
Man, I think that you just hit the nail on the head. I mean, if you go back and watch my YouTube videos from 2012, 2013, 2014, you're going to see a very nervous, very shaky, like very insecure, worried, poor speaker. And mm-hmm. I think it's, those were when I first started. If you go read my articles from 2011, 2012, 2013, you're going to read a very different author with very different uh, words, with very different writing style. Um, very, I mean, we could talk about grammar and stuff, but that's not even as mm-hmm. important. It's more just like the writing, the voice that I use, the words that I use, the way I get, uh, I get different messages across, completely different. Mm-hmm. And, and the only way to get better is to practice, just to do mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. the more you do it, the better you'll get. And, that, and the same goes with public speaking. I remember, I remember the first big speaking event that I ever did in front of several hundred people. I was petrified. I was, oh man, I, I, was, so, I was so nervous. I can't even begin to tell you. I had a, mm-hmm. a drive from New York to Boston to speak at a gym. And the whole drive, I was like, I, I cannot believe this is going to happen. Like, I am absolutely petrified. And, um, and then I, I got up in front of the crowd, there were several hundred people and I, I cussed in the first few sentences. Uh, and there were a couple of, of women in the front who were like, we're mothers. We don't like that. We don't, <laughs> we're like, we're mothers. We don't like that language. And I was like, Oh shit. Okay. Well, I'm really screwing up. <laughs> um, but I mean, now I can get in front of a crowd of people and, just dive right in me. Like, and mm-hmm. it's really not that big of a deal. I don't really have to even prepare very much. Like I can feel the crowd out and, and I'm pretty good, but it all just comes from practice. And, and yeah. that's, that's really it. I think confidence, confidence is built from experience. You can't be confident about something if you've never done it. You can't be confident about something if you don't know that you're good at it right? Mm-hmm. You can, you can pretend you can fake, you can have bravado, you can try and put on an air of confidence, but that doesn't hold up very well. And oftentimes people can see through it. The only way to truly be confident in something is to know that you can do it. And you can only know that you can do it if you've actually done it. Mm-hmm. I think that where confusion lies, because I can say that it, because I've definitely been there myself is like separating you know, thinking like, oh, this person's born with confidence and I wasn't and not realizing that there was a lot of steps that had to be taken to get to the point where someone's confident. I think that I, I, I look at that. I, uh, I've always been a fan of stand up ever since I was like in my, in my teens and Love for a while. Yeah. So for a while I was, I, I had gone and, uh, did like, well, basically I was watching open mics in my hometown for a little while kind of thinking like the idea was in my head that I wanted to do it. But I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe these people have the confidence. and like, yada, yada, yada. And I was talking to a couple of the guys that did it one night and they were like, yeah, I mean, you're going to feel fear every time you go up there, but it's just kind of conquering it time after time. And eventually I, I worked up the courage and I did it a few times. And I was like, wow, this isn't really quite as bad as, as you think. And I think the other thing that, that you, that you should try to flip is like, if you know, we always want to think that we're the center of attention and people so focused on us. But I think especially being at like an open mic, I think, you know, I've never judged anybody else and been like, Oh, that was terrible. Or that was because I'm just thinking about, Oh, I'm nervous when I'm going to go up, or I'm nervous what people thought about me. And it's like, they they have those same thoughts in their head. So realizing that you're not the center of attention, like your, your mind wants to make you think you are is, is powerful too, in that respect. Absolutely, man. I, I've done a number of open mics as well. I love doing stand up. I, I think one of the best pieces of advice I ever got 
for either giving a public speech or a presentation or stand up is when you go out there, you're very nervous about what people think about you. You're nervous mm -hmm. about like, are they going to like you? Are they going to hate you? Do they think I'm funny? Like whatever. One thing that is super important to remember is everyone out there is cheering for you. They want you to do well. Like everybody mm -hmm. is like, I, I want this person to do well. Nobody's out there being like, fuck this guy. Like, mm -hmm. Like, I don't like this guy before they even hear you. Like, they're all rooting yeah. for you because it's in everyone's benefit for you to do well. So they're all hoping you do well, which is mm -hmm. helpful because like there's a lot of times you go out there and we immediately think they're judging you. Like all of your own insecurities come to the forefront of your head thinking, oh, they can see this. Oh, they know that. It's like, no, no, they're rooting for you. They're your mm -hmm. biggest supporters right now. And to know that can be super, super helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think some good advice that I've heard that falls really in line with that is like, just be careful not to apologize or like point out where you've gone wrong. So like, if you're giving a speech and you're like, you, you know, you probably know by now not to go, Oh no, man, I totally missed this section. I'm sorry, guys. I got to go back. It's like, you know, when you're watching somebody, as long as they're confident and as long as they take everything in stride and keep everything somewhat coherent, you're never, you're not going to know if they, if they, you know, did, part five in place of part two or something like that, unless right. you start talking about it. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly right. And one thing I've always found is I've always been very interested in people who are captivating, like who are very captivating mm -hmm. speakers. And the one thing that I've noticed is it could be talking about anything. You could be talking about pumping gas. Mm -hmm. You could be talking about mowing the lawn. You could be talking about, playing a video game if you are passionate about it and excited about it you're captivating mm -hmm. i see this all the time if you're passionate and excited and exuberant about whatever it is you're talking about you can literally be telling you about how incredible it is to take that handle out of the gas pump you fucking mm -hmm. slide that card in there you squeeze it not too hard you don't want to go all the way because like, you don't know what's going to mm -hmm. happen but you squeeze it and you just let the gas go into that fuel tank it's like it's it, you're in you're like cool tell me yeah. more about this. It does, if you're excited about it other people will be excited about it and yeah. so i think that goes along with what you're saying where it's like i mean if if you want to apologize and it's like oh shit i'm really sorry it's like i think a lot of times what happens when people apologize for a mistake is the excitement goes away and mm -hmm. like they sort of go into their own shell They're like oh shit mm -hmm. i'm sorry but like oh i screwed up oh man mm -hmm. all right hold on i'm gonna go backtrack all of a sudden just the tone change like be excited about it. All right, we're going to go back. No worries. It's like people are cool. All right, let's mm -hmm. take me along for the ride. It's sort of like a dance, yeah. right? Yeah, and people like, want, people want to be led intrinsically, I think. Yes, absolutely. Long, like if they feel like they're being taken along, you know, it, generally like in the context of a speech or, or giving a talk, it's like if they feel like they're being led along towards something, we're such like creatures of, you know, being a part of a group and being tied to other people's emotions. And so if you if you realize that about people, I think it's really, really helpful too. And like, it's funny you talk about the, I think there's a quote by Jim Rohn that I, that I've heard before where he says it's, it's 20% what you have to say and 80% how you say it. And it's kind of exactly. like going back to the example of stand up. It's like you could give Dave Chappelle's best jokes to someone who's never done stand up before. And it's not going to be funny. It's funny because yeah. Dave Chappelle works on his timing and works on his personality and his delivery and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Right. Man, I remember, um, I remember when I was young, like in high school, the idea of walking up to a random girl in the mall or whatever was the scariest fucking thing in the world. The idea of going mm -hmm. up and randomly like saying like, hey, can I have your number or whatever it is? And number one, the more that I did it, the more confident I got in it. Because you sort of know like, well, okay, what's the worst that happens? You go up there and then like, cool, they don't like you. 
That's the worst. Mm-hmm. But what I realized was it was, it was so funny because you said people like to be led, right? So mm-hmm. if I just walk up to a random person and say, hey, like they're expecting you to talk. Like a lot of guys will go up to a, a woman and they'll be like, they'll want to get their number or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And like, they're like, Hey, what's going on? And like, that's all they'll say and they'll stop and they'll expect the, the girl to say something. And it's like, well, hold on. Like you just got their attention. Now you have to like lead them and you have to talk. Mm-hmm. So I always, it's so funny. It's like, I could talk about anything. I could talk about big bird. I could talk about Sesame street. I could talk about whatever mm-hmm. I want, but talk for 15, 20, 30 seconds, be nice, be captivating. And, then they'll get comfortable enough to take part in the conversation. But you go up to a random person and expect them just to lead the conversation. It's not going to end well. So mm-hmm. it's like same thing with whether you're on YouTube, whether you're in front of an audience, whether you're speaking to one person individually. It's like sometimes you just have to start talking about anything, usually about mm-hmm. something you're excited and passionate about for them to get to a point in which they're okay with it. Yeah, it's kind of a paradox because I think that I think that that nervousness in front of people or in front of a crowd or like you said, even if something as simple as like talking to a girl, it's it's uh it's kind of narcissistic because you you think that you're the center of attention, you think they're so focused on you, but once you flip that on its head and you realize that everyone kind of has that same internal monologue where they're judging everything they do, you realize that people aren't they're not judging you at every moment like you think they are and they're not going to you know be completely offended if you if you stumble over a word or whatever it is that that you're afraid of like the worst case scenario isn't even that bad exactly right it's a hundred percent like the example of getting denied by a girl or guy you want to ask out like yeah it might sting for a second but you'll forget about it you know in a week if not less you'll forget about it in 15 minutes. You'll laugh about it. You'll laugh. Mm-hmm. About it. Oh, that was funny. I can't believe I said that. Type of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, we're kind of starting to wind down here, but I was curious, there was one more thing I wanted to make sure we hit and you talked about it a little bit, but just like all around health versus just looking aesthetic, looking fit, you know, being able to lift a lot or whatever it is, your performance goal. What do you, what sort of considerations go into overall health for you? Man. So there's a lot, but I would say, I think I, the first thing I have to talk about is just energy balance because it's such mm-hmm. a huge issue globally. Um, if you're eating too much, you're going to gain weight, right? And like we see this massive obesity epidemic leading to a tremendous number of downstream negative side effects, whether it's heart disease, metabolic disease, um, strokes, diabetes, all these things. Just And mainly preventable by just eating in more appropriate portions. Not even necessarily quality of food yet. Quantity of food first, quantity first, and then after quantity, I'd say quality. Um, not to say that quality isn't important. Someone on social media would hear that. So what you're saying is quality isn't important. So that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you could have too much high quality food and still be unhealthy. It's, mm-hmm. it's so, so I think get your quantity in check first. From there, you go into quality of food and maintaining a healthy body weight, maintaining a healthy body fat percentage eating a lot of the vast majority of your food should be minimally processed, uh, high nutrient dense foods, uh, lots of fruits and vegetables, lots of protein. I say from a, a nutrition perspective that I think nutrition, it really has to be number one. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, exercise, super important, obviously. Uh, sleep, I think is massively under discussed and underrated. Uh, just it's pretty, pretty crazy to see how quickly a lack of sleep can negatively impact, impact your health mental health, emotional health, physical health. Um, I think everyone should, should see a therapist. 
should talk to a therapist. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk mental health and overall health. I think it's a, that's also something that's not really discussed very much. So I think everyone should have maybe a monthly appointment with a therapist just to mm-hmm. sit down and shoot the shit and just like let everything off their chest. Um, I would say, yeah, if I'm going to pick just a handful of things, I'd say nutrition, exercise, uh, sleep, and talk to a therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I like that last point. When I was going through a really rough transition period, like graduating college, I was seeing a therapist for a while. And like, I always thought, oh, you know, like I have, I have people I can talk to you, my friends and my family. But I think what's unique is that a therapist is someone who number one is a professional to be able to help you out with working with your feelings and emotions. And number two, probably even the most important thing is it's nice to have somebody who doesn't have any preconceived notions of who you are, what you are like, any of that kind of stuff. Because for me, I think that the biggest pain in, in graduating college and how many changes were going on at that time is it was just, I just had to change into a different person. Like the habits that were sustaining me through college, they couldn't be sustainable into my adult life. And so I had to change a lot. And yeah, I could ask friends and family for advice, but they would always be coming at it from the person that I've been in the past. And to try and be a new person, it's helpful to like talk through that with someone who doesn't know what, who you've been in the past. I, I completely agree. There, there's a, something oddly comforting about being able to just completely open up to someone who doesn't know who you are. And you know that their, their job literally is to just help you work through it and talk about it and call you out on your bullshit if necessary mm-hmm. and also help you see other views and avenues and ways to get better control and handle on, on what you want. But the fact that they don't know you, they don't know you from childhood, they don't know you, they don't know anything about you, it, it's a, it gives you an opportunity to truly present yourself who you are as you are. Mm-hmm. And like, especially the, the aspect of like, I think that my parents are the people that I'm closest to that I always feel like I can go with, uh, go to, to with my problems. But the thing is, they, they want to see you and understandably, they want to see you as someone who is doing well, and who's meeting they've seen their expectations and who's successful. But whereas kind of like you said, where a therapist can call you on your bullshit, it's like you, you need someone who is going to hold you accountable to the highest standard and someone who's so invested in your life and loves you so deeply. It's hard for them to be like, Hey, maybe you should change this. This is where you keep slipping up, you know, because they, they want to, they want to overall just keep the relationship positive and helpful. But sometimes what you need is, and it's dependent on, your personality, but some people really need someone that's going to be hard on them because, you know, it's like they say, tough love. Where does that come from? You know? Exactly right, man. I completely agree. Cool. Well, excuse me. I think uh, we hit on pretty much everything I wanted to talk about here. Do you have any closing thoughts, anything you would like to add before we wrap up here? No, man, this was great. It was a wonderful podcast. You did a a tremendous job and I've, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. I appreciate it a lot. I appreciate you coming on. Well, awesome, man. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. All right. You too. Hey guys, it's Jake again. I'd like to ask you if you enjoy the podcast to take a quick second and subscribe and rate the podcast. It really helps me out. And in addition, it'd be great if you would screenshot and share to your story I'd love to reshare and have a conversation about what you thought about the podcast.